Chapter 5 The Island While Agnes lay in her hospital bed, R.G. was soaring over the ocean. It was January 3rd, 1945, exactly one week before he learned about Agnes's illness and the loss of one of their babies. And for now, he was belted into a seat on an airplane, trying his best not to vomit. Out the window, he could see the endless ocean, the clear blue sky. But just the sight of the water made R.G. woozy again. He clenched his eyes shut. He'd been a mess for more than a week. Cold sweats, nausea. When he'd mentioned seasickness in one of his letters to Agnes at the start of their journey at sea in early December, he'd told her, some of the fellows were mighty sick. But he'd been sure to say, I was never so bad. Well, that wasn't so true. In fact, he'd been mighty, mighty sick. What made it worse was, the journey was supposed to be the easy part. After leaving Agnes in Baltimore, R.G. had gone on to complete his overseas training. Weeks of crawling under barbed wire, climbing up walls, and hunkering down as live rounds of ammunition were fired. With all that training, he'd assumed his special mission meant he would be heading out for combat. So the journey by ship was supposed to be a time of rest and relaxation before whatever hardships lay ahead. But the simple act of existing on that ship was a nightmare. The days at sea were a blur of endless motion, the floor rocking and heaving beneath his feet, the chop and drop of the waves, even his dreams rocking unsteadily, a sea-green churn of watery currents rushing into his mind, making it impossible for him to ever slip into the comforting depths of deep dreaming. Then came the storm. It hit them one night after their first week at sea. Walls of water crashed against the ship, all 1,500 men on board stumbling and falling over one another. There were so many men loaded onto the ship that many couldn't fit below deck, so they had to bunker down as best they could on the deck, gripping pipes and trying not to slip overboard. A very, very hard storm, R.G. later called the experience. And these people on the deck had no shelter, and so many of them got so sick and upchucked and you couldn't stand up. I stayed seasick even after the storm was over. The higher-ups took pity on R.G. and afterwards assigned him below deck in the ship's library his work no more laborious than pulling books off the shelf. But he spent most of his time lying on a cot in the back corner, dry-heaving over a metal bull. Eventually, they'd stopped at port in Brazil. They were to remain there for about a week or so, until making the voyage by ship halfway across the Atlantic Ocean. An island was waiting for them, their mysterious destination. That was all they knew. Why they were all going to that island was unclear. Their mission remained a mystery. What awaited them on that island was equally vague. But R.G. was so busy worrying about dying of pure seasickness on the ship that any hard land sounded more than fine by him. His pain and nausea and vertigo had been so bad that even days after they'd been at port in Brazil, he still wasn't back to normal. Sweating, shaking, unable to hold down food or water. Which is why, after a medical examination, it was decided that he wouldn't be able to finish the journey by ship. But that didn't mean R.G. was off the hook. Instead, they put him on a plane early and simply flew him off the continent toward a little speck of rock in the dead center of the Atlantic Ocean, to a place called Ascension Island. So he was flying. The plane roared over the water as the small dot that was the island gradually appeared out the window, nothing more than a tiny blotch over the flat blue of the ocean. It could have just been a smudge on the glass, but it amounted to the first hard land R.G. had seen all flight, the first of anything other than waves, water, the endless horizon. His journey by plane meant he would arrive days before the others, who would set off by ship sometime later that week. 
But Argy didn't exactly feel lucky about the arrangement. The plane was bumpy and loud and shook so aggressively that it felt as though it would dismantle into pieces and rain down into the ocean. Nausea churned in his gut as they skidded across air pockets. Their descent happened in sudden drops that felt more abrupt the lower they sank against the crashing tropical wind, and R.G. braced himself as they prepared to land. If they were able to land, that is. Before they'd taken off, the pilot had given him a fair warning about the dangers of the flight, but he'd concluded by saying, R.G. shouldn't worry too much about them crashing and dying. Hey, just look on the bright side, the pilot said. If we don't hit ascension, your wife gets a pension. But they'd hit it all right, or at least found it. As they sunk dangerously low over the island, wind whirring around the metal body of the plane, R.G. could now spot the runway through the window, a thin sliver of black pavement over the jagged rock of the island. The island was a blur of hazy physicality. Carved upon it, the runway didn't look like much. But according to the pilot, that tiny road had been a downright feat of engineering, not to mention a near miracle for the war effort. Thanks to the runway, Planes like the one in which R.G. was now seated could simply soar right over the ocean, above the threat of German U-boat attacks, then land safely on Ascension Island to refuel before flying onward to Africa. With American and British planes stationed here, they could also do circling routes over the waters of the South Atlantic, shooting down at German U-boats lurking beneath the waves. All good news for the war effort, but what concerned R.G. most of all at this particular moment were not German predators lurking in the waters. No, he was mostly worried about the birds. He could see them as the plane was nearing the runway. Flocks of black and white birds rolling in from the ocean like fog. The runway stretched across an airfield called Wide Awake Field, which got its name because of all those loud, yapping seabirds. Sooty Terns was their formal name, but R.G. had learned most people on the island just called them Wide Awake Birds, because if you think you'll get any sleep with them squawking and wailing nonstop, well, good luck. For anyone trying to land on the island, however, the birds were more than annoying. They were dangerous. Their flappy bodies, when met with the velocity of an incoming airplane, were like launched projectiles. They could crash into windows, explode engines, jam into propellers. And because this spot on the island was the only feasible place for an airfield, the planes were at the mercy of the birds who called it home. The guys on the island had even tried shipping in boatloads of cats to hunt down the birds, but the moment the cats were set loose, flocks of larger booby birds had swept in like bomber planes and had literally lifted the animals up in the sky, their talons gripped onto the cats' wriggling bodies as they plucked them to death in the clouds, then dropping the scraps of their carcasses down for their feathered wide-awake friends to feast. Before R.G. had gotten on the plane, one guy had said, the cats themselves were devoured. Even with his rugged background as a farmer... R.G. still had to admit the image of cats being torn apart by wild birds was just a little bit unnerving. The problem was apparently so severe that during the height of the birds' breeding season, the runway had to be shut down because there were just so many of them. The risk was too much. The end of the runway was a jumble of sharp volcanic rock that would shear a plane in two if it overshot. Just before R.G. flew in, three planes had crashed in the span of a month fireball explosions that scattered debris and flung bodies off into the ocean. So, with all these ominous warnings on his mind, and still queasy from seasickness, and about to land on a remote island with no clue as to why he was here and no assurance that he would land safely, R.G. closed his eyes and let whatever would happen, happen. His gut left his body as they descended. Air whistled around the body of the plane. The wheels hit pavement. 
Upon touching down, the plane lifted once more, wobbled in the air, touched down again, lurched and heaved, and then, with a violent deceleration, eased at last to the end of the runway. They'd made it. With other bleary-eyed travelers among him, R.G. stepped off the plane and into the groggy glare of the sun. The tropical air was hot and salty. He was blinded momentarily. The first clear thing he saw were huge waves crashing on the beach over the dunes. Birds covered the salty rocks around him like dirty snowfall, their white and black feathers ruffling in the ocean breeze. It was so bright he had to hold a hand over his eyes. Planes gleamed on the runway to the left, their bodies like glass mirrors in the sun, while the plane in which he'd flown taxied to the end of the runway. And over there on the right were those... donkeys? He blinked, and the animals blurred into focus. A whole crowd of bloated, sluggish donkeys was now wandering over the dirt through the hazy mirage beyond the fence. The fat animals nibbled at the rocks, appearing indifferent to all the chaos going on around them. The hot and shiny airplanes, the communication cables and equipment, sandbags stacked up high, rainwater reservoirs and water tanks, wires stretched over everything, fencing running up the dirt, Buildings and shacks and boys in uniform running around all over as the endless horizon imprisoned them on all sides. Welcome to the rock, R.G. heard someone say behind him. He turned to see a man in uniform approaching him from the haze. The man in uniform was an officer whose job was to show new arrivals the layout of the island, or the rock, as he called the place. Even before the tour began, R.G. wanted to ask, what am I doing here? He had expected some kind of explanation when he landed, but the officer couldn't say, or wouldn't say. All he did was walk along through the glare of the sun, chatting away, R.G. still without the faintest idea what his mission would be on this strange and chaotic rock in the middle of the ocean. But as far as remote islands go, it wasn't quite as bad as he'd expected. The officer began their journey upland past the airfield, where rows and rows of Bell P-39 planes were steaming in the sunlight. Behind them, a Baltimore Martin 187 kicked up dust as it landed on the runway. Just off the airfield, men were loading up trucks with boxes of ammunition. They had so much ammo, they kept it stacked out in the open in what they called the ammunition dump, which was right in front of the parking area where planes sat at random spots, wherever the pilots had left them, their fuselages roasting in the sunshine, scattered like beached whales. As for the planes that needed patching up, they kept those under camouflaged hangars, the roof layered with material to blend in with the topography of the island. Inside the hangar, men were dissecting an old plane, conducting an autopsy, the same way R.G. had once conducted post-mortems on diseased pigs back on the farm. The nesting grounds of the sooty turns were just up ahead. On their way, R.G. was warned the birds were overwhelming. It was like walking through a snowstorm of wings and feathers. The troops marching in review farther inland were far more organized. Their uniforms were crisp and clean, their weapons glinting. But not all the guys on the island were so put together. The men using shallow wash basins to wipe the grime off their faces all looked worn out, thrown together and weather-beaten, like the living accommodations all around them. It was a barren island, R.G. was told, and water was scarce. Making their way up the ashen slope, R.G. noticed the beautifully strange sound of voices rising in a crescendo over the shush of the ocean waves and the breeze. It was singing, he realized a whole choir of voices. He spotted them kneeling before barriers made of sandbags atop which a crucifix had been rigged. They called this place the Grotto. It was the island's Roman Catholic chapel, or 
the best they could do given the circumstances. The men's singing was interrupted only by the roar of Douglas C-47 streaking across the sky. The more they walked, the more R.G. saw how much the Americans had made themselves at home here on the rock. There was a horseshoe pit, tables for playing cards, a chow hall, an outdoor movie theater where movies were shown nightly, courts for basketball and sand volleyball, even baseball, which was played over one of the rare flat plots of land on the island. Here, the officer paused to tell R.G. this was actually the second baseball diamond on the island. The first baseball diamond had been situated on a large plot of flat ground at the base of a hill of ash, closer to the tents. But now, that original spot was empty. The commander of the Air Force, General H.H. Hap Arnold, had personally put a stop to baseball games there, or so it seemed to the guys on the island. All they knew was that Arnold had flown in some months earlier and had taken a tour with some of the top men here. Everyone was astounded that the four-star general and founding father of the U.S. Air Force was walking among them. His entourage called him the Chief, and they followed him as he observed the airfield, the beaches, the tents, the rustic accommodations. But the strangest thing, the officer said, was that after Arnold got a look at that baseball diamond, the boys were told to move their games elsewhere. The plot of land was being put to use for something important, they were told, although in the months since it still remained empty. As for why one of the most powerful men in the world should seem to care about some dusty baseball diamond, no one could say. All around outside, the island was loud and bright and windy, but there were quieter places too. Inside one building, there was a library for reading or a game of checkers, model airplanes dangling from the ceiling. And there were also even louder places indoors, like the bar at the Rotation Inn, where the servers dressed like soda fountain jerks and the men bellied up to the counter under the low ceilings. There were eerie places too, like the salvage dump where old wings of planes, ripped off, lay like flotsam in the dust. Hollow airplanes tilted shamefully against the rocks. Debris littered everywhere. Used parachutes spread open like gowns over dance floors, spring blossoms over mud, beautifully dirty and elegantly unfurled. Or there was the frail, lonely tree beside the enlisted men's barracks. It was the only tree on base that had managed to survive so long in the rocks, the cruel wind, the pecking of the birds. The men regarded it as an orphan, garnering a strange kind of respect from everyone. And of course, there was the cemetery where the dead rest, far away from their families. All sad stories. Crashed airplanes, drownings in the rolling waves, unlucky illness. The dead men, the dead boys, really, were laid to rest as deeply as was possible. Their friends had hacked for hours and hours at the rock to finally reach deep enough. The bodies laid to rest among ash and stones. But by far the strangest of all the sights on the island was way off in the distance. There, a lush mountain peak was cloaked in fog, jungle, and trees, visible by the sheer vibrancy of their foliage. So beautiful and impossible, it was like a mirage. R.G. couldn't take his eyes off the mountain. He beheld it with a quiet reverence, remembering the mountains of his birth. Smaller mountains rose in ripples before it, with the peak quilted in clouds beyond. Green Mountain, the officer said, for that was its name, and he told R.G. of all the aspects of the island, the mountain was usually what most caught the eyes of all the new arrivals. The luxuriant peak of the mountain floated far away in the depths of the island's interior. The name, Green Mountain, made sense. It appeared to be the only place here where vegetation grew, where plants unfurled their branches and foliage sprung forth. 
Looking at it from ground level, the mountain seemed to hover over everything else, like a different world. Misty, layered with deep shades of green, it was the only source of nourishing color on a dead horizon. But why that mountain should be so alive, while the island was so barren, made little sense to R.G. He didn't have much time to dwell on it, because, again, of all the donkeys. At that very moment, a pack of wild donkeys waddled over and began pushing past them, lazily shaking their hindquarters, hee-hawing at R.G. and the officer as if the animals owned the place. That was typical, the officer said. Apparently, the donkeys, like the wide-awake birds, were the real bosses around here. R.G. hadn't known what to expect when he'd set off on this special mission, but it sure wasn't this. When he was led to his living quarters, he found a Spartan arrangement. They were to live in tents set up over harsh rocks. Some electrical wires hung haphazardly from rickety wooden setups. A step ladder was even used to hold up one length of electrical wire, its bottom rungs held down by rocks. The wind raged and tent flaps shuddered. Walking up to the tent, the officer told R.G. he'd get used to the noise of the wind, but he'd better make sure not to forget to wear shoes if he stepped out at night, because the igneous rock of the ground was so sharp in spots, he could slit his feet open. That night, alone in his tent, R.G. reread through all the letters from Agnes that had been waiting for him here at the island's small post office. It was snowing in Virginia, or at least it had been a few weeks ago when Agnes had written these letters. When he'd gotten to the post office that afternoon, he had been expecting a thick stack of letters from Agnes, but all he'd gotten were a few short ones written in a quick scrawl, not at all how she usually wrote. Worse, the letters were postmarked weeks ago, from all the way back in early December. The winter in Virginia was, or had been, turning out to be one of the coldest on record so far, she had explained in that already long ago time. Windows were freezing and pipes were bursting. Rumors about a coming coal shortage. Snow piled up. Christmas was still on its way. The trees lit up with light bulbs. Daggers of ice hanging from the gutters. And here he was, weeks later, wearing short sleeves on a tropical island, listening to the wind and the sound of the surf slapping against the beach in the distance. He took out a piece of flimsy parchment paper and began writing. As you see, at last, we are here, he scribbled. Our mysterious destination. He told her about the officer's tour of the island. The planes on the runway and the planes in the sky. The stockpiled ammunition, as if an attack was coming any day, he wondered. And the birds, the church, the baseball diamond, the library. He told her about the strange sight of Green Mountain, as well as other things he hadn't seen yet, which the officer had mentioned. Apparently there lived a whole town of Brits farther inland, a place the British had named Georgetown, which consisted of about ten families with wives and small children who'd been living on the island for years. R.G. heard the Brits had even built a golf course. Much to my astonishment, he noted. But the British were good gents about letting the Americans play the course whenever they wanted, a token of friendship amongst allied nations. R.G. told Agnes he'd see if he could play around sometime in the coming weeks. All in all, he said, it didn't look like he'd be on the front lines anytime soon. They had told us all the way down here what an awful place this was, but I'm finding it much better than expected, he wrote. The days get rather warm, but they say we need one or two blankets every night. We will live in tents with wood floors. He scoured his brain for more to say, but he couldn't think straight. Narji finished his letter to Agnes just as the sky was beginning to darken. He stepped out of his tent and looked at all the other tents around him. Outside, guys were clanging canteens against the rocks, some shirtless with cigarettes dangling from their lips, lumbering over the jagged ground as if they'd been here all their lives. 
R.G. glanced up at the expanse of the sky bearing down on him. By now, the sun had sunk into the ocean, and, as if dissolved in pieces, a pool of sloshing stars was beginning to spread in its place. Some planes rose and disappeared into the darkness, becoming yet more blinking stars in the night sky. I miss you so very much, R.G. wrote when he got back into his tent, squinting by the light of a tiny lantern. All my love, Bob. On January 7th, 1945, three days before R.G. learned about Agnes's illness and the loss of one of their babies, the ship upon which he'd originally been scheduled to sail arrived at the shore of the island. Smaller boats chugged out into the water to collect the new arrivals, bringing them back to the beach like taxi cabs. That night, R.G. met his tentmates. There was Bill Brittenall, who lounged on his cot, reading a book. There was Kurt, who clacked away on a typewriter he'd somehow managed to lug all the way here. And then there was Buckley, who was eating some snacks he'd gotten from the PX right after they'd gone on their own new arrival tour. As for R.G., he was lying back on his cot and writing a letter to Agnes, his feet warmed by goofy-looking moccasins, the western kind with the frills and tassels. He'd seen one lone pair on the shelf at the PX and couldn't resist. He felt like Davy Crockett or Daniel Boone. Their tent was tent number one. Beside them were two other tents, wherein the other guys who'd been selected for their special mission were situated. Inside tent number two were two young guys named Black and Jones, along with a strange older fellow whom R.G. recognized from their time on the boat as they'd sailed to Brazil. Apparently, the strange man was some kind of professor. The man wore a wide-brimmed safari hat wherever he went, which shadowed his pale face and eager smile. He looked like a character out of a Hollywood movie, the excited academic about to set off on an adventure through the Amazon. R.G.'s tentmates, Bill and Kurt and Buckley, said they felt plumb lucky they hadn't ended up in the same tent as the professor. The old man, they called him. Inside tent number three were three fellows named Ward, Pearson, and Belkus. They seemed like nice guys from the brief conversations R.G. had had with them. But three things left him curious. The first was that his tentmates had heard a rumor from some other guys on the island about how their tents had been cleared out in a hurry. Up until a week and a half ago, these tents had been occupied by another group of guys. But that group had been told to move elsewhere. Apparently, they'd never even been told why. All they knew was that these tents were being confiscated. The second curiosity was how isolated they were. It is away from all the other tent areas, R.G. wrote to Agnes. So much so that none of the guys in tents number one, number two, and number three had undergone the usual quarantine period. When any new troops are brought in, R.G. wrote, they are usually kept in quarantine for a period of two weeks' time to see that they do not bring any diseases in with them. But we are so isolated from the other areas that it seems to serve as its own quarantine area. As for why they should be put to work so quickly, even to the potential risk of the health of the island, was a mystery. And the third curiosity was what he learned when he first spoke with all the guys occupying the three tents. He had asked the usual questions. Where are you from? What's your background? What do you do for work? Do you have a family? And although their hometowns ranged from the Midwest to the East Coast, from the mountains to the plains, and although some had wives and young children and some were bachelors, one factor remained constant between them. They were all farmers. Not just farmers, but experts. Men with degrees and equally impressive reputations for their agricultural knowledge and experience. R.G. lay there on his cot that night, 
his feet warmed by his tasseled moccasins. He felt lucky to be here, lucky not to be out on the front lines, lucky to be resting comfortably on a folding cot with a group of decent guys in his tent, guys who'd grown up on a farm like him, who all spoke the same agricultural language. But a single question kept gnawing at him. Why did the Air Force quietly and urgently send a group of random farmers to an island in the middle of the ocean? If only he could talk to Agnes about it, he thought. But then, he still hadn't heard from her in weeks. No more letters yet from the one I love so very, very much, he wrote to her that night. After all this delay, I am beginning to think that you may be very sick. I sure hope I am wrong. Early the next morning, the tropical sunshine slanted over the group of farmers as they stood in a line wearing button-up shirts, their sleeves rolled up and collars pulled open to let the breeze off the ocean cool their necks. They were standing in what might as well have been a desert. Their tents were just barely visible off in the distance, hazy like the tents of desert travelers in Arabian nights. R.G. half expected a camel to come clopping quietly toward them. He wondered if the other guys knew what this place was, this wide-open tract of ashen, rocky land. As someone who'd been on the island close to a week now, he had visited here before, and he knew from the others on the island what the former use had been of the land on which they were now standing. This was the old baseball diamond, which had since been vacated. Now it was a desert of ash. They'd been called out here by Lieutenant Colonel John D. Torrey, a man they all referred to affectionately as the Colonel. But this morning, the Colonel wasn't alone. That strange professor from tent number two, still wearing his wide-brimmed safari hat, stood there as well, and it wasn't long before the Colonel stepped aside to let the professor take over the meeting. Introducing himself... The man explained that he was Professor Kendrick Blodgett of Purdue University, and that they were all about to make history together. Judging by the shifty glances of the guys beside him, R.G. guessed they'd all heard this elaborate introduction before. The professor then squatted down low and scooped up a handful of ash right off the ground. Their mission, the professor explained, as he still held onto the ash, was a special one. They had traveled thousands of miles to be here, had been separated from their families, had no doubt been confused and curious as to why they were here. Now, all that would change. The reason they'd been brought here was simple. Vegetables, the professor said. No one said a word. The wind exhaled around them. Ash dusted their boots. Collars ruffled. The sun kept on beating down on them. Meanwhile, the professor seemed to savor the silence, as if he was under the impression he'd just left them speechless with the sheer drama of his performance. At last, he said, We're growing tomatoes, radishes, cucumbers, lettuce, and peppers. Then he gestured toward the ground and said they would grow it all right here, right down in the rock beneath their feet. The Air Force had chosen this island because of its isolation and harsh terrain. The goal was to give the men stationed here some relief from diets consisting of nothing but canned food. No fresh food can be grown here naturally because of the volcanic rock and lack of rainfall, the professor said, and there aren't enough refrigerator ships to keep it supplied to the states. And take it from me because I know. It'll mean a lot to the men here to be able to eat fresh green food. The men were only more confused now, but the professor continued, undaunted. As for how they would be able to grow fresh vegetables here, the professor had one word. Hydroponics. He seemed to be waiting for some flash of recognition, a collective, ah, but the guys just stood there, silent as ever. 
The colonel asked if the professor could perhaps elaborate. Certainly, the professor said. Hydroponics is the science of growing things in water, which has been chemically enriched. He described it as an ingenious method of growing plants without the use of soil. Instead of letting plants stretch out in the soft, nutritional earth, hydroponic plants are grown in inert materials, such as sand, sawdust, or, in their case, the professor let the handful of ash finally spill through his fingers, lava cinder. We add to the water those substances which the lava cinder lacks, the professor said. Nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, calcium, and magnesium, in this case. Technically speaking, this was not a new practice. It had been scientifically improved in laboratories on small scales over the last few decades. Ancient Babylonian civilizations had even used similar methods to create spectacles of hanging gardens and floating rafts on which flowers perpetually bloomed, wonders of their era. There had been modern implementations as well, on Wake Island and on equally barren Ponape Island in the Western Pacific, for example. And amateur hydroponics gardens had popped up in California under the tutelage of a professor by the name of William F. Garrick of the University of California. But here, on this island, they would be constructing the first-ever military-scale modern hydroponics farm in the world. The professor told the men that in just a few months, this entire field would be lush with vegetables and plant life. They would start by carving growing beds right out of the ground on which they were now standing. The beds are asphalt troughs about three feet wide, Blodgett said as he unfurled pieces of paper from his pocket, reading through the plans. We fill the trough with volcanic ash and plant our seeds in it. Then, periodically, we run the treated water through the trough, reclaiming it for further use as it runs out. We use distilled seawater, he added, just in case they wondered from where this treated water would be sourced. The guys asked how large the operation would be, and the professor just looked around taking in the full scope of the dead field around them. We have about 80,000 square feet, which is a little more than an acre and a half, he said. None of the guys knew how to respond. They looked around at the ashen fields, breathing in the bone-dry air, while the wind tossed scraps of debris like tumbleweeds across the barren plains. By that evening, word had already spread around the island that a bunch of the smartest farm boys in the country had been shipped in to grow fresh vegetables on the rock. It made R.G. and the other guys on the hydroponics team wildly popular. Other than fish snagged out of the ocean, no one on Ascension Island had seen fresh food of any kind since the start of the war. It made the thought of plain old vegetables seem downright luxurious. Total strangers were now coming up to them in the chow hall to cheer them on. Everybody on the rock knows about it, said a guy from Missouri named Corporal Wayne Burton. Boy, if it means I can sink my teeth into a fresh tomato, I'm all for it. R.G. wrote to Agnes that night about the enthusiastic response. Our secret project is certainly meeting with great approval from those stationed here, he wrote. But to the guys actually working on the hydroponics team, it all felt so odd. Their job, well, it was gardening. It didn't make any sense. Why all the secrecy in the lead-up to their arrival? Why were they rushed here so quickly? In his letter that night, R.G. explained his mission to Agnes as much as he was allowed to tell her. He couldn't go too in-depth, but still he outlined the job ahead, the numerous challenges, and his honest confusion about the whole thing. He signed each letter the same. All my love, Bob. He still hadn't heard back from her since well before Christmas. The day R.G. got the news that one of their daughters had died, 
Rain clouds hung over the island. All morning and afternoon, they'd been in the process of leveling the gradients and moguls of ash on the old baseball diamond before they got to work creating the hydroponic site. That was how their grand scientific experiment began, tilling fields of ash like doomed characters from a Greek myth. The professor had already given them the broad strokes of their project, that is, to build some beds, plant some seeds in volcanic ash, pump some nutrient solution into the beds, and abracadabra, grow life. But over the last few days, RG and the rest of the guys had been holed away in a tent, coming up with the nitty-gritty details for how they would actually make that happen. The plan had several steps, none of them guaranteed to work. First off, they had to clear away the growing site. Hence, the group of them all bent over with spades and shovels and wheelbarrows. The next step would be to haul two 25,000-gallon tanks up to the top of a hill close to their work site, with the use of a truck, they hoped, and then fill those tanks with desalinated ocean water that had been enriched with nutrients. The nutrients were chosen to best emulate those found in arable soil. Potassium, phosphorus, nitrogen, calcium, and magnesium, broadly speaking, which would trick the plants into believing they were in fertile land and not dead, inert material. Once the tanks were filled up and secure at the top of the hill, they would install pipes to run from the tanks and down the hill to the lowland, where the guys were now grading the land into terraces. These terraces would serve as their gardens, four in total, where all the vegetables would grow. The terraces were a series of four descending steps, so that the enriched water could flow from the tanks by gravity down into the first section, then drain down to the slightly lower second section, and then on to the third section, then the fourth, each one slightly lower than the one before. The terraces would also have to vary in size. The upper section would be 115 feet wide, while the lowest would be only 85 feet wide, to compensate for the amount of water absorbed by the prior beds. The design of the flow system had been particularly tricky. It was like an inverse of the Panama Canal locks, Enriched water would flow from the reservoir tanks down the hill and into the first bed, until the bed was filled entirely. Then a valve would be turned, and extraneous water would release down into the next bed. The system would repeat for the third and fourth bed, until the remaining water finally drained back into a sump to be reused, pumped back up the hill into the reservoir tank, and then flow back again. The goal was to emulate the water cycle of nature itself, a constant ebb and flow that would sustain life. Meanwhile, a fresh rainstorm hovered over them all day long as they hacked at the ground in the dry heat. And yet, not one precious drop reached the guys below. That was one of the cruelest phenomena Argy had discovered since his arrival on the island. The floating rain. While there were plenty of tropical showers on the island, the drops would all evaporate well before reaching ground. This created a strange optical illusion for the guys stationed here. They could gaze straight up at a rainstorm just above their heads and yet remain dry, as though an invisible dome were encasing them. R.G. wrote to Agnes, When we first arrived, I asked someone about the rainfall, and they said there was a lot of rain, but very little fall, and that you never get wet when it rains. It sounded screwy to me, but that is about the way of it. It seemed the only place high enough for the rain to reach was up on Green Mountain, way off in the island's interior. There, the clouds scattered showers over the dense trees and shrubbery multiple times a week. Perhaps that was why the mountaintop was so lush. R.G. and the rest of the guys down low, meanwhile, could only watch from a distance, wondering why they couldn't try growing vegetables up on the mountain instead. They all sweated until they'd taken off their shirts, feeling the sweat literally bead and pour down their backs. 
Trying to flatten the ground felt impossible. It was no small job, either. Each terraced garden would have to contain 25 growing beds, and each growing bed would have to be carved out of the volcanic rock 3 feet wide and 400 feet long. Now that he was having a go at it, RG began to fully appreciate how colossal a task it must have been to buzz cut a field of rocky knives down to a smooth airfield on which a plane could land accurately enough not to explode. They felt like they were making no progress at all. RG was exhausted by the time he stopped by the post office that evening. By now, he'd resigned himself not to expect anything. Each day, there was that dread when he left the post office empty-handed. The usual questions lingered. What was wrong? Why wasn't Agnes writing to him? But there was no one to whom he could reach out for help. He'd written to his family asking for news, but they hadn't said anything. When his siblings or his parents wrote to him, they would respond to every question he'd asked in his letters. How was the weather? How is so-and-so doing? What's the news on the cattle? But when it came to Agnes, it was as if they had skimmed right over his urgent questions. They ignored him entirely. His letters back had understandably grown impatient and even a little resentful. Please do tell me what's going on, as I'm anxious to know. And then they'd reply with the most chipper letters of their own, asking him if he was getting a tan out there in all that sunshine, never saying a word. But today, the post office worker handed him a stack of letters, and right away, R.G. recognized Agnes's handwriting on the envelopes. He rifled through the stack, three letters from her in total. Rushing back to his tent, he sat down on the edge of his cot, tore open the first letter, and started reading. Bill, Kurt, and Buckley were lounging in the tent around him, talking and laughing, R.G. was only a few sentences into the letter when he stood, without a word, and went back outside. He walked off in the distance, found a spot on the rocks. He sat there alone, reading each letter. Then he read them again. Clouds hung over the island as he sat there, an untouchable storm raging above his head. A few days later, a communication cable from the Red Cross arrived, informing R.G. that, on the orders of the War Department, he would be granted an emergency furlough to go home and attend to his gravely ill wife. But there was one problem. That cable had been sent just after Christmas. He also received another cable that told him to ignore the previous cable, explaining that he would, in fact, be staying on the island. I finally had a report from the Red Cross on the cable they sent, he wrote to Agnes that night. It was kind of mixed up, but I was able to tell that since everything was fine now, my presence was not necessary. It also said the other cable was incorrectly addressed. Something about having forgotten something or other. It just did not read clearly enough to understand it. The whole thing was so confusing. How was it that both cables arrived on the exact same day, even though one had been postmarked weeks earlier? And what did the cable mean when it said, everything was fine now? They'd lost a daughter. R.G. had read about her entire life, her birth, the days she struggled to stay alive, and the day she died, all in the span of a few short sentences written on flimsy stationary paper. Carol. That was the name Agnes had given her. A fighter of a little girl named Carol, born at Christmas time. He would never get to hold her, never even get to see her. And when it came to their other daughter, Agnes Gray, nestled inside a glass incubator, R.G. was not reassured. Three pounds, three ounces. That's how much the baby weighed. 
He didn't have to be a doctor to know that wasn't normal. What made it all so much worse was that he knew other people would feel lucky to be in his position. Not out fighting on the battlefields, instead doing relatively safe work in the tropical sunshine. But beyond his own troubles, that lingering sense of uncertainty bit at him. The War Department had said that given the nature of his mission, it was vital he stay to see it through. What about some ragtag group of farm boys trying to grow vegetables out of ash could be so vital? And why had the cable sent on Christmas been so delayed in reaching him? Agnes may have been too sick to respond in those first weeks after her illness, but the doctors and nurses had surely reported her condition. She'd been on the brink of death, after all. It was only by luck that she'd survived. And she still wasn't even out of the hospital. They should have at least alerted him. It made no sense. That night, R.G. slid on his comfy, tasseled moccasins and lay back on his cot, trying to square it in his head. He was proud to do his patriotic duty and serve his country in whatever capacity the military leadership saw fit, but a part of him still wondered if that informational delay had been on purpose. Even accounting for unforeseen variables like bad weather, confusing in shipping, or countless other delays, there was no reason the Red Cross or the War Department couldn't have reached him in time. Had they deliberately kept the news from him to keep him here? And if so, why? Vegetables, the professor had said. But that couldn't truly be the full extent of it, could it? Vegetables? 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 